This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm Chad Pytel, and with me today is development director in our London studio, Laurie Young. Laurie, thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be here. You're the development director in London, and I'm over here visiting, so we figured we'd record a podcast. And one of the things that we did when I was here is an event called The Developer's Path, and it was a panel discussion. Yep. The idea was to see if we can help with the the challenge that there's a lot of junior developers who are doing the beginning bits of their development and then going on into the job market and finding they want to be a bit further along in their progress than they are and that many companies have the same problem from the other side. They'd like to hire people who are just a little bit more experienced than they are. And so we were wondering, is there a way we can put together an event that will help close that gap a bit and discuss about different ways we can do that? I think you're being too kind. I think a lot of employers think that they shouldn't hire junior developers or or feel that they don't know how and therefore only try to hire senior developers. That's exactly right. And I hear a lot of... um, people arguing that they can't find developers but actually there's a a lot of really talented junior developers who just need that little bit of help to up their game just a little bit Mm -hmm. and i think people underestimate their ability to incorporate junior developers onto the team and that with some simple tricks and like we have a whole apprentice program right and but even that and while i believe apprentice programs are great and encourage companies to do them most companies, you know, are nowhere near that. And it it only just takes a medium amount of effort to make sure that adding someone who is, is a little less experienced to your team goes really well for that person. Absolutely. And it's really the case I found that developers can upskill really quickly when they're paired with someone who's more experienced and they learn, particularly in a given application, the way it works. They can really quickly get up to speed. Yeah. So on the panel, we had... Uh, me. So I was sort of from the employer perspective and specifically around our apprentice program and how that's been very effective for us. You know, ThoughtBot has really high standards for quality and team uh, of technical leadership, but maybe even more importantly, our clients have really high expectations for what it's like to work with ThoughtBot and who's on our team. And so Those pressures, I think, if one looked at it, they might think, well, ThoughtBot can't hire more junior people. And we could if we like build differently, but we prefer simple things. We prefer to have same rate for everybody, those kinds of things. And so we arrived at the apprentice program because of those constraints and realizing that there was great people out there that were otherwise great additions to our team. And in fact, we would probably be worse off if we didn't add them to our team and that not being, you know, the best (laughs) at SQL shouldn't be a barrier to figuring out how to have them join our team. So we started taking interns, what we called interns. And I think we had someone who was like 30 or whatever, and (laughs) he was leaving his job to come intern with ThoughtBot. And that was when we realized, um, you know, he couldn't go home and tell people 
people that he he was leaving his job to become an intern and that was where the apprentice name came from you know trying to think of a, a different word for what that was going to be and what that model was yeah and you you hit on a, a really interesting point that what makes a, a great developer and a great member of the team is many things other than things like their sql skill mm-hmm. and you can learn sql if that's not your strength then it's relatively easy to to start go from knowing nothing about it to knowing something about it and then a bit harder to get really competent at it and okay it's maybe it takes a lot longer than that to become a world expert but the vast majority of the things we do require people to be competent mm-hmm. rather than world expert mm-hmm. and things like are they a good fit for the team are they collaborative these are really important things and when we find someone as you say who's got those skills then it's worth investing the time in bringing up the learnable skills yeah so also on the panel, we had another employer. Yeah. So we had um, Steve Alexander, who is currently vice president of technology at Essential, which is a Financial Times 250 company here in the UK. And he's building a team internally that's using a lot of the similar styles of development techniques that we use here at ThoughtBot. And he's employing a number of juniors, a number of more experienced people, and He's got the experience of picking up these junior people, adding them into the team and bringing them on. So he was able to give his perspective of what's worked well and how he's been able to do that. How, how long has he been in that position that he's built the team of about 12 people over? I believe it's about a year, maybe yeah. a bit less. It's, it's Not a huge quick. amount of time. Right. Yeah. And, and that's the other point that I, I honestly don't remember whether I made it during the panel. <laughs> and it's worth noting that um, we did uh, record the whole panel discussion and we do expect it to be. That's right. We've, re- we've recorded it and well, we've, no, we've checked all the recordings. It all looks good. So okay, good. <laughs> that's going to be um, making its way with Chad back over to Tom in Boston and we'll have fun editing that, I'm yeah. sure. Um, but the point that I try to make is that if you are aggressively hiring and you want to do it quickly, it is, a, I think, a mistake that a lot of people make is thinking that they have to hold out for more senior people because they don't have time to train. And I would rather bring someone on and train them over the course of three months than we have a team member than wait an indeterminate amount of time, usually more than three months, to find uh, people, And of course, the other benefit of doing it that way is not only do you have a, a team member during that time, but you learn and have the experience of bringing people on. And so you can repeat it. And yeah. so you can do it again and again. Yeah. Also, people underestimate, like you said, Laurie, being a good developer and being part of a development team is so much more than just your technical skill. So when you hire new people, there's a series of phases that you have to go through to onboard that person and normalize them to the team. And if you're, especially if you're building a team rapidly, then like you're going through those phases and it can take time. So those phases are storming, norming, what are they? (laughs) Uh, Let me see if I can remember. It's um, forming, norming, storming, and performing. Mm -hmm. And it's an analogy that I believe first came out of military thinking. Um, the idea is that in the first stage, the team just you f- it forms, you gather the members, they meet mm-hmm. each other. In the next stage is forming, mm-hmm. norming, storming mm-hmm. and performing. Mm-hmm. 
Or is it storming Norman? Yeah, I, I don't know. But the point <laughs> is, is people underestimate how much more of those things there is. And so even when you bring together a group of senior people and you are able to do it quickly, which is very unlikely, you still have to go through those processes together before you have a functioning team. Absolutely. And what you find very much is that once the team's got that dynamic and they know how they work, then a lot of the conversations become unnecessary. Mm -hmm. It's a case of you look at a problem and you say, how are we going to solve this problem? And you don't even need to have the discussion because you know you've got to the same solution. Yeah. And I had a, an experience of this recently. Uh, Pablo, who's one of the developers here in London, and I were helping a friend move house. It's a completely different set of skills to development, but we didn't need to talk. We just saw the problems. We picked it up, knew which boxes to pack. There was very little conversation. That's because we've got such an, a long experience of working together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not to sell ThoughtBot too hard, but I think that that's one of the, <laughs> the benefits you get when you work with us is we don't need to go through those phases. We have a set of defaults. We know uh, we've worked with each other before and we can very quickly get started. That's one of the benefits. Definitely. So then also on the panel, we had Sam Morgan, who is head of education at Makers Academy. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, quick shout out to Makers Academy. They're a, a boot camp here in London. They do a, a three month zero to programmer course. I don't think that's what they call it, but that's what they do. Mm -hmm. And Sam was talking about some of the ways that they like to encourage a love of learning in what they do. And the idea that people who love to learn and know how to learn are what you really want to be looking for when you hire because if someone doesn't know all of the skills and for any application particularly these days there's so many different technologies it's almost guaranteed that you're not going to find someone who can do all of them so you need someone who can pick up whatever particular technology you're using really quickly and who can learn new technologies as they come along yeah i've interviewed a lot of people from a lot of different boot camps and spoken at them and we developed a boot camp of our own which no longer runs along with Kaplan. And Makers is one of the best boot camps in the entire world in terms of the, the quality of the people that they graduate and the progress that the people make in the program. And Sam mentioned at the event that they've trained over a thousand developers. And that's remarkable. And it's um, the event was probably biased in that there was someone from Makers on the panel. There was a lot of Makers people in the audience. But even outside of that somewhat biased audience, everywhere you go in London, you meet people who either went through Makers or who have hired Makers graduates. That's true for ThoughtBot here. And that was the other member of the, one of the other members of the panel was someone who had done that, right? That's correct. That was um, Sroop Suna, who went through Makers, it was a couple of years ago now, and she came and interviewed with us here at ThoughtBot London, New Bamboo as it was at the time. And we hired her and kind of said to her, right, your, your first job now that you're here is learning anything that you didn't manage to learn during the three months you're at Makers because it's, it's a three-month program and there's a lot to learn. And she spent several months, I can't remember exactly how long it was, pairing with different people here, um, jumping on a few projects, reading a few books, and working with the team here to upskill, and then joined our team as a, as a fully-fledged member. And she's now moved on, and she's working at, at PEG, which is a, a social media company. Mm -hmm. Social media technology, rather than doing social media, I should say. So she spoke about not only her experience in progressing along, but also in how you're perceived as someone who has transitioned careers 
into development without a development background and very quickly. And I think when boot camps were first getting started, I personally heard a lot of skepticism. I'm like, oh, you can't learn to be effective in three months. And I don't hear that so much anymore. I hear other arguments, but not really that one as much anymore. That's absolutely right. And the the first time that we interviewed someone from Makers, uh, they'd come to us and said, hey, you know, we've, we've finished this. I think it was their first ever cohort. It might have been their second. And we'd love for you to, to interview some of our graduates. And we were very, very skeptical. But we had a conversation with them. We were very much, look, we like what you do. We're skeptical. I don't think we're possibly going to hire anyone. But we're, we're happy to do some mock interviews so that some of your graduates can have some interview experience. And they sent someone over and we interviewed this guy. And we're like, wow. This guy's amazing. There's no way we can not hire him. <laughs> and so we made him an offer and he accepted. And he stayed with us for a, a good couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is remarkable how quickly. And, and part of it is the people. I mean, they're very motivated. And as I go around and, and meet people who have gone through boot camps, it really comes down to opportunity and exposure that, that people had. So, so when I was a kid, I was exposed to a computer. And that's how I discovered that I love programming and love computers. And my parents got a computer from a garage sale. And had that not happened, there's a chance that I would have never really discovered that I love programming. And there's so many people that I met that just said, I never was exposed to computer. I didn't know this was a thing. I met one guy, I think he was a, a plumber. And he had just, that was not part of his environment at all to understand how computers work and how you could program them and that that was a career path. And then he got exposed to that somehow. I think he was 35 or something. And just like it clicked for me when I was eight or 10 or whatever it was, it clicked for him. You know, there are people out there that it, that it clicks for. They just never got the opportunity. Absolutely. And, and that ties into a, a slightly unrelated point, but one I, I think is important, which is it's the background you have that gives you that opportunity to interact with a computer when you're younger. I had um, I started off on a ZX Spectrum Plus 2, which I used to program in BASIC, <laughs> and that's because I was in a position in a family where that was affordable. But at the time, computers were you know, not a, a ubiquitous item that they are today, and it was very much a case that only certain segments of society had access to computers mm-hmm. and so even had that opportunity. And I'm pleased to say that's changing now. Right. And that's one of the things that's driving a huge influx of junior developers is just a large, vastly larger number of people have that opportunity to do the early stages of playing around, tinkering with the computer, learning both the, the joy and the frustration of trying to figure out why their code doesn't work and the, the frustration of why it doesn't work and the joy of making it work mm-hmm. afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my first computer was a TI-94A. And it's funny because I'm not that old that that should have been my first computer, but we weren't very well off. And, and so I think my parents got that for like $99 at a garage sale. And it was, you know, it was whenever that was, maybe it was 70s technology, but I was getting it in the 80s. So I had this experience and then got a ColecoVision, which ran off of audio cassette tapes as the storage when everyone else was on like IBM 286s and 386s. So I have this sort of outdated beginning thing. It was, it was sort of neat, but the first computer I had, all I could do on it was program basic. And so I had to program if I wanted to do anything with the computer. Yeah, for me, it was um, my grandfather bought 
first of all, he bought an Amstrad for my mother because she had to do a lot of word processing. And the Amstrad computers, they were just black and green. And from what I remember, the, the operating system just let you open word processing files. It was mm -hmm. basically a glorified typewriter. And then at the same time, he got me the, the Spectrum, which was a, a much cheaper computer. But it, as it turned out, it was actually a computer you could program and play around with. And it was lots of fun. Yeah. We're missing someone who was... <laughs> yeah, we haven't spoken about Maria yet. Yeah. So Maria Kate is from Rails Girls London, and she's done a huge amount of work over the last few years addressing the fact that it has been very difficult, particularly for girls, to get into coding and running a whole host of different community events that make it easy for people who come from backgrounds where they don't necessarily have access to computers. So that can be to do with their affluence growing up and the opportunities they had, but it's also gender-based. For a long time, it wasn't considered the right thing for girls to be given computers, and that's been a problem. Mm -hmm. And so she's set up a whole load of community events, the intent being to make programming and computing more approachable. Mm -hmm. And she was talking a lot about that and, and some of her experiences going from her initial background as a graphic designer and learning to code. Yeah. She had a lot of interesting points. One of the things that stood out to me was that she realized, so Rails Girls started, um, there's another organization called Rails Bridge, where it's primarily training classes that anybody can take, either very low cost, just to cover expenses, or free, usually free. Now, Rails Girls in London, she's realized that it's also about the connections people make and the networking. And so, they have their training classes, but they also, there's like 250 people who come to the meetups now. And it's uh, a lot about the connections people make and that kind of thing. I remember one story she mentioned where someone came to, to do some training to join the community and actually got a job offer at the event. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because there were, there were people there looking to, to hire a senior developer. And right. she's well known if there's someone here who's actually really skilled, not a, junior, not a senior yet, but you know, have a conversation with them and they got a job offer. I think it was pretty much on the spot, wasn't mm -hmm. it? That's what she said, yeah. That's cool. amazing. We yeah. should also mention Margaret, our moderator, mm -hmm. who is from the Natural History Museum and has done a huge amount of work running Over the Air, which is a, a mobile-based hack day that's been running for, I think, eight years now in London. And she came along and moderated the event and kept all the panellists on track. Yeah, she did a great job. It was <laughs> just want to say a huge thank you to her because she really helped out with the event. So thank you, Margaret. Yeah. So this is a topic that I care a lot about. And I think that like I alluded to in the beginning, ThoughtBot has very high standards for quality and very high client expectations. And I'm really proud of the fact that we've managed to incorporate training so heavily into the company. And that makes me sort of passionate to tell other people that they can do this too at their company. I think there's just so much resistance to doing it. Um, and I, I just think training needs to be a part of every company's growth plan. Absolutely. And I think a lot of that resistance is fear, mm -hmm. not yep. knowing how to do it and worrying about what happens if you hire some junior developers and don't manage to train them. Yeah. But there's plenty of um, resources out there that you can take, like the, like the ones that we've put online, and there's many others that will make it easier for you to build that program and start to, to take junior developers and really help them. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. So we, we recently open sourced Apprentice.io. Um, so we changed that from being sort of the front facing about our apprenticeship program to 
a list of the companies that are doing apprenticeship programs and the manuals for how to do them. It's all on GitHub. You go to apprentice.io. So whether you do an apprentice program or not, I encourage you to, but the building blocks for a really great supportive environment are there and open source and check them out and contribute to them and that kind of thing. So the event itself came together pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, it pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. It was about four weeks. So we started thinking about how can we boost the knowledge about ThoughtBot in London? Because one of the things we're finding as we do some community outreach here in London is we meet people and they're like, oh, I love ThoughtBot. I had no idea you're here in London. And that's always a slightly frustrating thing yeah. to hear. Yeah. So we started thinking like, what well, what can we do that's, that's authentic to who we are, that talks about things we really care about, but helps establish in people's minds the idea that we're here in London. Mm -hmm. And we started uh, working with a friend of mine called Sandra, who's come in to give us advice on marketing, sales, events, that side of things. And she's been absolutely fantastic. And we sat down and said, right, let's plan out a series of events. And we realized that August was really quickly approaching and that it's a, a bad idea to try and do any events in August because no one's around, including mm -hmm. us, because we're yeah. off to Summer Summit and I'm away for two weeks of holiday before that. So mm -hmm. we thought, right, we, we need to try and do something at the end of July. So we focused on a panel discussion on the subject of a development topic because that's right within our strengths and something we thought we could put together pretty quickly. And we quickly found some panelists. That wasn't too difficult, fortunately, and found a venue. And then we had to set about putting up an event page, describing the event and starting to gather an audience. Mm -hmm. And that was a, a fun experience, one I've not done before and challenging because you have to continually mention it in various forms. We, we mentioned it to some of our Upcase subscribers. We mm -hmm. tweeted about it. I personally did quite a lot of outreach to individuals I thought would be interested. I know you did the same. Yep. And the attendance figures started to go up quite mm -hmm. slowly, quite slowly. And by the end, we were not quite sold out. I think we had like two, maybe three tickets that we hadn't sold. So we were pretty close. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things is we did actually charge ticket price for this. Um, we charged five pounds, which is a, a nominal amount. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to try and make sure that people felt committed to coming and that they only signed up if they actually wanted to come. One of the challenges that events in London have is typically you're doing really well if 50% of the people who sign up turn up. Yeah, that's actually the number we use across the board. Like when we're organizing an event, that's what we plan for. We plan for 50% of the people not to show up. Yeah. And we wanted to, to experiment with just putting a small ticket price on that to see how it changed things. Mm -hmm. And I remember we had a conversation like, is that right? Will that prevent people signing up? And it turns out it worked pretty well. One thing that really surprised me that actually I'm still in a bit of shock about is I had a number of people come up to me after the event and actually say, thank you for charging. <laughs> and I was like, um, what? <laughs> Why were they thanking you? They thought it set the expectation that mm -hmm. it would be a quality event. Mm -hmm. They were thinking that that tied in with it was actually really well attended. Mm -hmm. um, I think there was about four people who signed up who didn't attend and at least one of them contacted me in advance and said, I'm really sorry, I can't come, but I'm sending somebody else in my place. So we had, the numbers were still there. And several people brought guests on the day, so they got tickets at the door. And that really, I thought, contributed to the engagement, both while the panel was happening. I noticed the room was silent with yeah. absolute attention on what right. the panelists were saying. No one was on their phone. No one was mm -hmm. fidgeting. That was really awesome. And then people stayed around and networked for a really long time afterwards, which mm -hmm. was great. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we've ever done that. 
we've charged for training and events before, but it was always a significant ticket price or even, you know, 35 or something like that. Something that we were actually trying to cover costs. Whereas this wasn't about covering costs. It was about making sure people understood that there was a commitment and value being. Absolutely. We, like, we certainly didn't cover our costs. I mean, right. <laughs> we haven't lost vast amounts of money, but we have, you know, it has been an expense to run yeah. the event. Right. And I'm completely fine with that. I think we did a, a great service for this and I'm looking forward to doing more events yeah. to see how we can do this on, on other topics. Were we also, was the charging, you know, five pounds because we were afraid that it would fill up with people who weren't going because we did have a cap on the size of the event right yeah the the venue held about 50 people maybe 55 so we mm-hmm. set the cap at 45 because there's going to be panelists there and, mm-hmm. and a bunch of us running the running the things behind the scenes and we were quite concerned that we would sell out of the tickets if right. they were free i think particularly because it was like we were choosing something that is in our strengths which is a even though we wanted employers to come, there was a chance that if we made the event completely free to sign up and then you're free to not attend, that it would just be filled up with developers who would then not uh, actually come. Yeah. And we didn't have that. So yeah. I think it was a success. Yeah. I, th- I, I think it worked out. <laughs> it was probably a little bit more stressful for you too. So um, Sandra and I were, were running things behind the scenes and we were both running around and quite stressed Mm -hmm. she was helping organize all of the food all of the on the desk stuff she had done a huge amount of work with us beforehand which i'm inordinately grateful for and then i had made the mistake of wanting to do all of the recording and the audio visual Mm -hmm. at the same time and that just took a little bit longer to set up than i thought so i was Mm -hmm. running around a little bit stressed and then while the event itself was going on i was at the back of the room keeping an eye on the cameras and every time the air conditioning unit kicked in, I'm like, that's so loud. That's going to come out really loud on the audio. And, and I don't think it has. I think we're fine. Mm-hmm. But as a result of that, I actually didn't get to listen to that much of the, yeah. of the panel. So I'm really looking forward to, to the video so that I can find out what was said. <laughs> yeah, I, overall, I think it, it was really uh, well put together. I think it was probably you took on more work yourself than you needed to do. And but one of the things you said to me was that afterwards that like Thoughtbot's known for quality and you want that to come through in the event and I in everything we do, basically. And I, I totally get that. Yeah. And I was really keen on that. I wanted to make it like just one step above the, the mm-hmm. meetups with beer and pizza at the back. So we had some really nice food and we brought in some craft beers. And people appreciated that. I had a number of people come up and particularly the food commented on how good it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it um, was really good. So uh, that was really cool. Yeah. So uh, even though it's a lot of work, we plan on doing more. <laughs> yep. The plan is quite vague at the moment, but mm-hmm. it will um, crystallize over the next few weeks. Right. But the idea is to do the next event will probably be design oriented because mm-hmm. that's obviously the other thing that we do. And the current plan uh, so hopefully this will pan out because I'm about to, to broadcast it, <laughs> is that Kyle, our chief design officer, is going to come over to London around the end of September and host something themed around design sprints. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll be great. So the problem of meeting people in a city where we're, we have a studio and 
them saying, oh, ThoughtBot, I love ThoughtBot, I had no idea you were here, exists across the board. Probably most frustrating is when it happens in Boston, (laughs) because we have been in Boston, that's where we started, we've been there 14 years. Does that happen often? (laughs) Oh, it happens, yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, that's in part because you can't reach everybody all of the time, and there's new people coming into the community all of the time. And also, ThoughtBot has this sort of global reputation. <laughs> One of the reasons why the strategy of of growing geographically has worked is because we had a global reputation and we were able to ex- sort of expand to fill it a little bit. And so we're sort of like this online entity <laughs> that doesn't necessarily have a location. So some people are surprised to find we're in their city because of that. And others are surprised because they know the history of ThoughtBot up and, and up until somewhat recently, we were just in Boston. And so whatever expectations they might have, we don't meet them. And I think the events are potentially a way, that, something that we could do across the board in different cities. Now, that, that's not to be said, we actually sponsor and run lots of events I think this kind of thing is a little bit different where it's much more strategically. um, We are running this special event and it's a little bit like when we put on a conference, which we do in Austin at a smaller scale. Yeah. And I actually have a a slight admission, which is that I had heard about ThoughtBot a long time before I realized that ThoughtBot was based in Boston myself Mm -hmm. because the, the way people hear about ThoughtBot is through all the online stuff, through the through the gems, through the blogs, mm-hmm. and it is just this online thing. And mm-hmm. then you realize, like, oh, I had just assumed it was in one of the famous cities. Yeah. The other thing people always assumed was that we were much bigger than we actually were. <laughs> now we probably match people's or exceed people's expectation for size. But uh, I actually have a, a blog post from a long time ago where... I sort of went over the things we accomplished in a year as a as a team in terms of open source and all that kind of thing. And I think I remember saying it was like, I'm so proud of the team that has done this. It's only 16 people or something <laughs> like that. So I think we we defy some people's expectations, which in a good way. And the events help us show people we're here, we're people, you know, we are something tangible that you can reach out to and work with because you know to be honest we're a consulting company (laughs) that's what we do we help people build products and we need them to know that that we exist especially because we always like to do local projects yeah so it's useful if people know where local is for us yeah um this is something that we we struggle with a, a little bit because we like i think a certain uniformity and our audience is pretty big and there's a balance between, you know, segmenting the, like we could have a ThoughtBot London Twitter account. We could have a ThoughtBot Boston Twitter account. A lot of companies do that. We could have an engineering blog and a design blog, but we are interdisciplinary people who like an interdisciplinary approach. We like a broad approach. And so we tend not to segment the audience, but it then does become hard. We were just talking about this yesterday where like, you did like seven tweets or something like that about this event on the ThoughtBot Twitter. And there's a tension there around taking over the whole ThoughtBot channel for something that is so local. Yeah. And we've got, um, I can't remember off the top of my head how many followers, but it's tens of thousands. Yeah. I think it's 47,000 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I haven't gone into the analytics and looked at where people are based, but Mm -hmm. 
the vast majority of them are not going to be in London, which right. means anything we post about stuff we're doing in London is by definition irrelevant to them. Right. And that's a, a tension that I certainly felt while I was queuing up those tweets and thinking, mm-hmm. you know, is this the right thing to be putting on the on the account? But we've also got to tell people that we have this event. Right. Otherwise, there's no point putting on an event and having all this great panelists talking about this fascinating subject if no one knows about it. Yeah. And there's definitely a tension there. Yeah. I think that while my natural instinct is probably to try to minimize the overhead of an event by not doing the recording and that kind of thing, the more I think about it, the more it makes sense because then it sort of resolves that tension in some way because we can take the local event and have it recorded and share it with the rest of the audience. And then the next level up from there would be to live stream it which is a whole nother level of complexity. And I think that's we have to strike a balance there. But that would be one step further to sort of resolve that tension. Yes, this event is local and we're here and we're going to market it like hell <laughs> to get people at the event. But then the rest of people who are paying attention to ThoughtBot can also partake in it. Yeah, and with recording it, you know, like the first, this was the first time we did it and it was stressful but it's something we can practice and, and get really quite slick at. Mm-hmm. And so I think for future events, we'll be able to do the same thing without it being anywhere near as stressful. Right. A lot of it was little things like, we need a microphone stand to put, to put the microphone on, and that's $10. So mm-hmm. we, we'll know about that. We're going to draw up a list of all the things, little things we're missing, maybe spend 20, 30 pounds on, on mm-hmm. getting those things. And then the next time we do it, it'll be really straightforward. Until we lose that. <laughs> well, well, we'll maybe spend another few pounds on a bag to put it all in. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were actually going to experiment with, with live streaming this one. Nick mm-hmm. was really keen to um, plug in his iPad that he was talking about on the podcast he came on, which he's mm-hmm. now got, and try and live stream it. Unfortunately, Nick had a cold for several days beforehand and soldiered in to help out with the event. But That's okay. It's okay. It probably was good for the first event not to add the overhead of live streaming. I think so, yeah. <laughs> so any other lessons learned from running the event that people, listeners might take or if you know other ThoughtBot offices might learn from? Absolutely. The, the key learning for me was that there's a lot of work you need to do beforehand. You need to write the description. That takes quite a bit of time and effort in crafting the description so that it's really clear what the event is. Otherwise, people are going to be reading it and saying, I'm not quite sure what this is or why I should attend. This one was tricky too because we specifically wanted to make it clear it was not just an event for junior developers. Definitely. And we had to do a reasonable amount of work in reaching out to to people who weren't developers because that's obviously our our core Mm -hmm. audience. It's quite easy for us to reach developers. So that was one learning was that there's just quite a lot of work putting the event description online, putting all that together, and then marketing the event, making sure people know about it. And the other learnings were all about actually running the event on the day. Um, There were quite a lot of tasks we had to do at the venue. We were allowed in, it was about an hour before the event, and we had to set up the audio, we had to set up the seating arrangements, we had to get the food in, we had to get the drink in, we had ice for the ice bucket. Obviously, we couldn't buy ice in advance and, <laughs> and just leave it around because it'll melt. So there was a lot to do on the day, as well as the tidying up at the end, where I think we, um, we struggled a little bit to get the tidying up right. Mm. And a couple of people were doing quite a lot, which the next time we do it, we'll be quite sure to pay attention to. Here is a series of different tasks that need to happen. Make sure we've got enough people to do those tasks at the event. Make sure they know what those tasks are. And then I think it will go really smoothly. Yeah. Good. Do you have anything else? Just thank you to everyone who came and made the event a a huge success. and, And thank you to all the team here who came and helped out. Yeah, everyone did a great job. 
So that about does it for this episode of Giant Robots Smashing Another Giant Robots. You can find show notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm slash 247. Talk to you next time.